Hello, this is Terrence McNally. I'm preparing this show on Election Day, Tuesday, November 8th, and I suspect we may not know the results in terms of the House and Senate for a few days. I'll be recording my response to the election this Friday, November 11th, in conversation with Rob Johnson of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. We'll post the podcast right away, but it won't play here until next week. Right now, I'm anxious, and I can't get Plato's paradox out of my mind. Plato cautions that the people don't really want democracy and that it inevitably leads to tyranny because the rich will always want to get richer and the poor will follow a demagogue who promises to overthrow the rich. He adds that the greatest penalty for declining to rule is to be ruled by someone worse than oneself. And that, I fear, is what we are dealing with in the U.S. today. Here's my 2020 conversation with Astra Taylor. I first learned of Plato's pessimistic prophecy in her documentary, What is Democracy?, and her companion book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. We explore democracy's early roots as well as its current embattled state. And she reminds us that real democracy, fully inclusive and egalitarian, has never actually existed. Both ancient Athens and the original U.S. were slave states. The question is, will we be able to restore rule of the people to the current American rule of the wealthy? Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. And I'm going to be speaking today with Astrid Taylor. She's director of the documentary, What is Democracy? And author of the book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. And you can learn more about all of her work, and there's a lot of it over different media and so on, at hiddendriver.com. That's hidden, H-I-D-D-E-N, driver, D-R-I-V-E-R, hiddendriver, one word, dot com. The show airs on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA and streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn. Podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. And this is the point where I plug participation. Since this is an election year, let me encourage you not only to get involved with candidate campaigns, that uh, strike a chord with you, but also with efforts to fight voter suppression and assure that all Americans get their right to vote. This year, of course, um, mail-in ballots and the right to vote by mail is going to be a crucial issue. So keep an eye on that and be active, as if the future depends on it, which it does. And now, at this moment, as we confront the coronavirus pandemic, I also encourage you to do your part social distancing, wearing masks in public, finding ways to help those in your community who are hurt most by the social isolation and the economic devastation now unfolding. Now to today's conversation. Earlier this year, uh, about the time the pandemic was claiming its first few Americans, The New Yorker initiated a series of articles about the state of our democracy. The first two installments, both of which I highly recommend, were an essay by Jill Lepore, who writes for The New Yorker pretty frequently, and hers was called The Last Time Democracy Almost Died, and it's about the 1930s and uh, the threats that faced us and the way that we confronted them. There was, uh, I mean, at that point, early January, they didn't realize, I mean, the, the stock market was booming. They didn't realize we'd be facing the greatest economic challenge perhaps since the Depression. But she talks about how the different extremes in America related to that, and finally how Franklin Roosevelt and the people were able to come out of that one. 
The other essay was one titled The Right to Listen by Astra Taylor, today's guest. It's a pretty radical approach to a culture that's all about speech. And Taylor admits that the idea that the right to listen to one another should be defended in a democracy may seem strange. Probably, she thinks, because we don't understand listening as a political act. We expect powerful people to be talkers, not listeners. And in that essay, she refers to experiences she had directing the documentary, What is Democracy? And I contacted her about this interview just before everyone's life got taken over by COVID-19. And I'm excited that we're finally able to have this conversation. I often talk about taking the long-term view and seeing the big picture, but her work has reminded me that I'm probably so accepting of the status quo, the, the water that we all swim in, that when I think I'm talking about democracy, I'm probably looking at things tactically at best, that I fail to ask or imagine what I actually mean by democracy, whether what I imagine is possible, and if so, what we have to do to make it more likely. Taylor reminds us that real democracy, fully inclusive, completely egalitarian, has never existed. And then she asks questions like, is democracy a means or an end, a process or a set of desired outcomes? And what if those outcomes, peace, prosperity, equality, whatever, could be achieved by non-democratic means? What would that tell us? Her documentary, What is Democracy?, opens among well-tended ruins in Athens. Athenians believe that a good city is a just city, and Plato cautions that that is an unlikely outcome because the rich always want to get richer and the poor will follow any demagogue who promises to overthrow the rich, leading inevitably to tyranny. He adds that the greatest penalty for declining to rule is to be ruled by someone worse than oneself. And then she cuts to a Trump rally. Astra Taylor is the director of the documentary films What is Democracy, Zizek, and The Examined Life. She's written for the New York Times, the LA Times, The Baffler, The New Yorker, among others. She's the author of The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. And Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Welcome, Astra Taylor, to Free Forum, A World That Just Might Work. Thank you so much for that incredibly kind introduction. I really appreciate it, and I'm happy that we have finally connected uh, to get to speak and to listen to each other in the midst of a crisis that I think, you know, as I hear the title of my own book, I think, oh, I didn't realize just how timely that would be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, that's been so true of, of other things that I'd sort of put in the pipeline and, and, and then, you know, end up actually uh, taking on during this period. And of course, this period, as as many say, we're in, to use the baseball analogy, we're in the second or third inning here, that this, I think most of us are not quite ready for how long this may last. Um, and let me tell listeners, we're recording this conversation Friday, May 8th. And, and apropos of what we were just saying, first of all, I have to ask, how are you doing? Where do you live? What's the pandemic like where you are? How are you coping, et cetera? Well, right now, at this moment, I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina, because my family lives here, um, meaning my parents, and they have, uh, they're taking care of my nephew and niece because their parents work. And so every, like so many families, we're juggling for childcare. So I've come down here to, to be more of an active aunt, uh, so, so helping to take care of three kids under eight. And, you know, watching this uh, crisis unfold from from the South, and a state that 
um, has actually been quite critical in discussions about democracy. I write about North Carolina a lot in the book, and it's actually featured prominently in the film, uh, both because of my roots here and because of what an interesting sort of laboratory for anti-democratic politics it, it has been. So I would say I, you know, I can't complain, but like so many others, I'm struggling to kind of adapt to these new circumstances. And I'm very concerned. So many of the issues that I care about, I work a lot around issues of democracy, obviously, and also around economic justice, especially indebtedness, are really coming to the fore. I mean, we're seeing a, a you know, mass unemployment and what will be no doubt a, a massive debt crisis in the months and years to follow. So a lot of work. Um, and I'm a lot of gratitude that I'm I'm in an okay position compared to so many others. Yeah. No, I think the thing that you're saying about debt is so crucial. I think particularly about families, because we know that statistic that, what is it, 70, 80 percent of Americans are, are not ready to handle a $400 emergency, a car breakdown or something like that. And, and then I, I really also think about uh, cities and states and local local areas that you know that have worked their way back from the crash of 0809 and and yet most of them never made up for all the cuts they inflicted on themselves at that point uh, in terms of education and higher education and now here they they're hit with this one and the federal government seems uh, the republicans seem not very inclined to help them out 100 percent we we are definitely in during a, a new period of austerity at the state level, which is tragic because what we need to do is invest and deficit spend at this moment so that we can be um, more prosperous down the road and, and you know invest in the infrastructure and the, that we need in the next generation. So I think we're we're going to see a lot of hurt at the state level because of these the politics of indebtedness. Yeah, and and, and what we have is a moment when what was of course especially based on Republicans, what was impossible. We could never put money into some of the things we're putting it into now. But now, you know, facing the level of the crisis, we do. But, but as this unfolds and as the, 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 the bills come due and so on, uh, it's, it's, it's really going to test us as, as, as a people and, and, and a lot some of the very ideas that you write about. Well, it's interesting. I've been going back to ancient Athens, which, of course, I do in the, the book and the film. It, Athens was not the birthplace necessarily of the practice of democracy. I believe that human beings have been sort of embodying democracy in many ways throughout a, a very long period. But the Athenians give us the word democracy, which comes from demos and kratos, the people have power. And um, and there's many interesting features of Athenian democracy. Of course, it had its shortcomings, as we all know. It was a society based on slavery, and it excluded women and foreigners. But they, they devised some remarkable strategies for including the poor in their politics, um, specifically compensating people for their participation in the assembly and um, compensating people to be on what was called the council, which was sort of like their Congress. It would propose laws and also handed, handled all of the society's sort of um, welfare programs and also in the courts and the, the uh, juries that were so central to their society. But what I don't mention in either of the projects is that right at the apex of Athenian democracy, the plague of Athens hit. Ah. And Thucydides writes about this at length in his History of the Peloponnesian War. Um, he actually suffered from the plague, and this was a devastating plague that killed a third of the population, 100,000 people in Athens. 
And it was very detrimental to their democracy. I mean, it's a scale of devastation that's incomprehensible from what, you know, compared to what we're experiencing. But it did pave the way for um, a, a, an oligarchy. Uh, that was another word that the Greeks gave us. Oligarchy mm. is rule by the few, and it, it means, you know, rule of the rich. And I think we live in an oligarchy today. Absolutely. So there's a parable there. I mean, Athenian democracy is full of warnings and parables. Um, that's why I kind of can't stay away from it. And and there's one there about the effect of, of a plague and what it has, what consequences it has for a democratic society that uh, isn't prepared to handle it. Let's jump from there to to this point, which is that I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we talk about. So let us know a little bit more about yourself. You're an activist, an author, a journalist, a filmmaker. Briefly, perhaps, how do you see your personal path to the work you do today? Well, it's, well my childhood is very vivid in my mind because, as I said, I'm, I'm sheltering in place near my, my parents uh, down south. I mean, I have I have an unusual background in that I, I was unschooled as a kid. So I recently wrote a piece for New York Magazine um, about the fact that millions of people, not just in the United States, but around the world, are suddenly homeschooling mm-hmm. or, or attempting to uh, because schools are, are closed. And um, so the editor reached out to me and said, oh, do you have any advice from your childhood <laughs> that you might be able to give people? And my advice in the piece is to let go. The idea behind unschooling is that human beings are intrinsically curious and that we have a drive to learn. And the the trick then is to create the structures that would encourage that curiosity um, and not inhibit it and to try to figure out incentives that are positive, right? So can you foster a love of learning um, instead of threatening punishment for, for people who don't do their homework or don't behave, right? Astra, we share something here. Um, as not not my background, I went to Catholic school for the first uh, 10 years and, and public school only for the last two. Um, but as a senior in college, I had been involved in teaching as my work study job the, the year before, my junior year. And uh, for my senior year, I was preparing to write a thesis. And I got as my tutor, John Holt who I assume you oh, are. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, he took. How was that? He was taking, he had written How Children Learn and How Children Fail, and he was an unschooling uh, person. Um, uh, and he had taken a one-year post at the Harvard School of Education. So I was a fan of his. I went to him. I said, will you tutor me on my thesis? He says, yes. I present my thesis proposal to him. And basically his reaction was, well, that's very nice, but wouldn't you really rather do something? <laughs> and he introduced me to 29 kids who had just been, who had been suspended from a newly opened uh, private school in uh, Sudbury, one of the uh, affluent suburbs of, of Boston, Cambridge. And uh, I met with the students, I met with their parents, and we ended up starting our own high school, for which during my senior year, I was the founding director. And um, that was the notion of that school, which was that you did not have to go to class unless you wanted to. You did not, you know, you basically, we ended up uh, getting uh, 32 acres and a barn as our, uh, our home base. And, I mean, a rather large barn where we could have classes, separate classes and all that sort of thing. And it was a phenomenal experience. And so when I 
you know, got to that part of your story, I went, oh, yes, you could have been one of my, and it was called the Satya Community School, Satya being the Sanskrit word for wisdom. And uh, you could have been one of my uh, seniors. I will say that the, 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 uh, the um, student who I have uh, followed over the years is Nan Golden, the artist who uh, um, has, was the one that said that the, you know, Guggenheim had to give money back and so on and, and has been quite an activist artist. She was one of the students in that school. Oh, wow. What a small world, because Nan was collaborating closely with a dear friend of mine on that campaign. I love that. I mean, for listeners, John Holt is the person who came up with the term unschooling. So this defined my childhood and the childhood <laughs> of many others. I mean, so it's kind of phenomenal to talk to someone who uh, who met him and was encouraged exactly in the way that one would expect, right? That you'll learn more by doing it, by trying to yes, engage that's right. other he, people he, in an educational experience. Right. What he said to me was what basically we said to those students. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I love that. So I think, you know, in the history of political philosophy, the idea that human beings are intrinsically good conjures Jean-Jacques Rousseau, yes. right? That that institutions are, are corrupting and people are intrinsically good. And so I think to understand my work, you have to understand that that's sort of the baseline against with, I, I wouldn't say I'm rebelling against it, but always pushing back. Well, can unschooling scale? I mean, it's interesting that my work as an activist and organizer and much of my work uh, as a writer is focused on the need for public education, free public education, student debt cancellation. So I'm interested in these questions, I think, of how do you institutionalize um, uh, uh, frameworks that, that begin, though, with that, I think, what is central to unschooling, which is trust. Mm-hmm. extending trust to people before you take it away. And I think democracy, because it's rule of the people, has trust at its core too. You have to extend trust first in a democracy. You don't meet it out like it's some scarce resource because the idea is the people do have the capacity to make decisions. It doesn't mean they'll always be right. It doesn't mean it will always be easy. But if you don't begin with that foundation of trust, then you know, you're, you're doomed from the beginning. And so that is the spirit, I think, of unschooling that I take. And I think that spirit is very much in the piece, The Right to Listen, that you mentioned, which is to say it's about wanting to be a constant learner, a constant unschooler. You never graduate from unschool. That's, <laughs> you know, that's, that's right. It's something you do your whole life. Just And so that is why... Yeah, so that's why listening is, you know, it's it's not about then you graduate and then you get to be the pontificator who knows all. It's like, well, no, you live a life where you're constantly trying to learn and expand your horizons. And and that actually there's there's a real dignity in asking questions and wanting to learn more. It doesn't mean that you're the subservient student who, you know, needs um, a master to come and, and tell you what to think or tell you what to do. So to me, all of these things, I think, do stem all of my various projects stem from that initial experience of kind of having a, a self-guided education and, and sort of wrestling with the implications of that. Let's talk about that article because, as I said, although I'd been aware of your name, I hadn't seen The Democracy, I hadn't seen, you know, your books um, until I saw that, that article, The Right to Listen. And um, you, I think, point out one way that it links to other things we will talk about is that you point out that your focus on that, your your crystallization of that came from your experience of making the documentary, What is Democracy? 
title of the film is a question. And that is there to sort of reflect the fact that it's something we have to figure out together. And uh, to also signal to the viewer, this isn't a film where you're going to just hear some experts drone on about what democracy is and how it works and all the procedures and regulations. So I went around and I spoke to all sorts of people. And what I tried to do is treat every single person in the film like they were a philosopher. So I went to school children and I asked them, what do you think about democracy? Do you experience it in your life? Right. Um, what do you think freedom is? I spoke to trauma surgeons. I spoke to Syrian refugees. I spoke to factory workers, um, Black Lives Matter activists, all sorts of people and and gave them the space to sort of intellectually reflect on these questions. And the thing that you have to do when you're engaging in this, just like you're doing right now as a radio uh, interviewer, is you have to be quiet to let the other person speak. And so you can take in what they're saying and then respond appropriately instead of just trying to hit your talking points. And this is always a real challenge for me when I first begin, mm -hmm. just relearning how to truly listen and hold my tongue. And then I thought, you know, and then as I made the film, too, I edited it in such a way so that you cut the film cuts to me listening. So, you know, it cuts to me really actively showing that I'm engaged in what people are saying and me asking questions. And that is a purposeful motif because I I. I think, as, as you said in the introduction, you know, our society is built on this obsession with the First Amendment and the speaker, the person with the microphone is the person who matters. And we devalue the audience. We devalue listening, even though listening is such hard work. We all know it's hard work because it's hard to listen to your spouse when you're having an argument or your kids when they're talking to you for the 12th hour straight or coworkers or uh, let alone people you politically disagree with. We all know listening is hard, but we don't give it any respect. And what I found in the, as I went back into the legal history of the First Amendment is that there's a kind of vestige of a, of a right to listen, of what's called the audience rights in the New Deal era Supreme Court. And that there was, there's a sort of um, potential for a radical interpretation of the First Amendment that would push us away from the, the model we're stuck in now, which is, you know, all about freedom of speech, but also allows us to consider or forces us <laughs> to yeah. recognize corporate corporate spending as speech, which is such a corruption of the original intention, because the First Amendment is there not to facilitate corporate speech, but to enhance the public sphere. And the public sphere is a sphere of talking, but also of listening. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, I mean, you said that you, you treated everyone in, uh, in your documentary as valid thinkers as as uh, throw a question out there sit back one thing i want to let people know is that uh she also speaks with philosophers and and and, and political scientists cornell west wendy brown and so on and you give um you give these individuals uh that same attention and what's uh what's clear is that they rise to the occasion and one thing I found in, 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 in researching this was that you said that it wasn't like you shot tons and tons of footage and then cherry picked, you know, the articulate answers. You, you basically said there wasn't a heck of a lot of this on the cutting room floor, that basically people were this articulate. You know, the barber who'd spent nine years in prison. You have the uh, Guatemalan uh, immigrant, uh, you know, who's uh, in North Carolina, am I correct? Yep, North Carolina. Yeah, and 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 just, I mean, a couple of those just just really uh, got to me, um, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is that I'm not the kind of filmmaker who spends 10 years filming one subject and winds up with 800 hours. I'm far too impatient <laughs> filmmaker to do that. I, I admire those sorts of verite in the field. So my films are always organized conceptually. I, I also sort of love the challenge of how do I convey my passion for ideas in this medium. Mm, that's right. You know, how do you how do you visualize an abstraction? So that's a very sort of for me a, a fun challenge I keep returning to. Um, but I didn't know the experiment was going to work when I went out into the field. And I, I worried, of course, I worried <laughs> that I would get a lot of duds. And I was so pleasantly surprised. It was one of these experiences that I think, you know, made me um, more of a small D Democrat. And I think that comes out in the book, which is a kind of companion that I wrote after I wrote right. as, as I was putting the finishing touches on the film. I started writing the book because I wanted to express more of sort of what I had learned and the nuances of it and have a bunch of footnotes that I couldn't put in a cinematic piece. I think people are very, um, I think a lot of people are very impressive. I mean, we have a media system where the sort of worst aspects of human behavior yes. are amplified and where the incentives, just in terms of the commercialization of our media, the incentives are pretty twisted. But what I found, you know, talking to people is there were, I, and I'm not, uh, I don't want to idealize it. I mean, I tried to show some of the ugliness that I encountered. And, you know, I did encounter bigotry and I did mm -hmm. encounter um, uh, sort of illogical, uh, in what I thought were illogical interpretations of events. And I encountered quite a bit of uh, racism from uh, people I spoke to. But overall, on the whole, it was quite, uh, it was a kind of affirming experience. Um, in fact, last night I just finished reading, because I don't have many books with me, I just finished reading Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell. Mm. And it's quite, it's a, quite a terrifying book. And he comes out of the Spanish Civil War at the last two pages and he says, but you know what? I haven't lost my faith in humanity because the individual Spaniards I met were really kind, good people. And, and you know, that was a far darker experience than what I had going around making this documentary. But I sort of came away from the same thing, that there's something structurally really wrong. The incentives are set up in a way that encourages a lot of terrible behavior. But people are pretty intelligent. And when offered the space to reflect philosophically, not only did they say things that really surprised me. Um, they were also grateful for the opportunity. Yes. The most common thing I heard from people was, wow, I didn't expect the interview to be like that. They thought it was going to be a kind of gotcha interview. And they enjoyed it so much to be engaged uh, in this way. To be, As I said, when I tried to treat them as philosophers, they felt grateful for that respect. Yeah, and that, that comes out in your New Yorker piece, that mm -hmm. in fact it is uh, that, that when we listen... One of the things that happens is that sense of appreciation, that sense of connection that we don't get unless we sit back and listen. I want to share just a couple of the things just that, that really struck me that were said by some of these folks, just so people get a sense of it. And one was uh, a 19-year-old black woman who made the point uh, basically this. She said, we've still got the 60s issues. But the state and the capitalists have built structures to keep us out. And what she said that I thought hit home so strongly was she said, we thought that voting was the key. We thought that going to school with whites was the key. We, nothing. We did those things. We, we got the legislation. We got the change. Nothing is opening the real door to liberation. What comes next? And I just thought that was very powerful. Then the Guatemalan immigrant woman that I referred to, in, in you're talking to her, she says, when I came to this country, Clinton was good on immigrants and I was happy. 
And then off screen, we just hear the word now. And she breaks down in tears and tells us that the kids on the school bus tell her son, you're going to go back. Now this is after Trump's election. Now you're going to go back to where you came from. And of course, I did the math. And if she arrived during Clinton's term, uh, he was born here. Um, and then the other exactly. one that re really struck me was the Afghan refugee um, mm -hmm. uh, who said when you asked him what democracy meant, he said democracy is justice. And he was very clear that it wasn't freedom because freedom can you can be free to do all sorts of things. But what what he wanted out of democracy was justice. Yeah, those are great picks. I mean, I'll, I want to talk about each of them, if you don't mind. <laughs> Go the, ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, Abid, who you mentioned, who's from, um, originally from Afghanistan, but he had never lived there. He, like so many people, he's born somewhere, and then his parents moved him. So he was moved to Pakistan. Um, he was actually just deported and sent back to Afghanistan. Oh. He really tried uh, to stay, stay in Europe. Um, but right as the coronavirus outbreak was happening, he's was deported. Um, but his comments, I think, are so profound because we, as Americans especially, are, have been taught to associate democracy with freedom and, and then also freedom with the so-called free market. And I, I can see how his comments, I can see the audience kind of um, kind of taking in what he's saying, you know, that, that, that freedom can uh, on its own is sort of not an, an allied good. And so in the book, I write a chapter, each chapter of my book is about sort of paradoxes central to democracy. And so the first chapter is about freedom versus equality and holding those values in intention. And I quote a beat and I say, I think that holding those values in tension is actually justice. That's one way to understand it. His comment also conjures for me, uh, since we were talking about John Holton unschooling, yes. uh, the other famous proponent of alternative education, A.S. Neal, who wrote the book Summerhill, mm -hmm. uh, whose sort of slogan was freedom, not license. Exactly. I mean, right? believe me, yeah. that was, that was if, if not on my wall, on my forehead, you know, as I was engaging in that school. It was A.S. Neal and it was freedom, not license. I love it. So that's one of my sort of mother's principles, too. Right. You know, and and it's hard. Where do you you know, I mean, it's it's difficult to sometimes tell the difference. But there's something in that uh, in that statement that's really profound. Delaney and uh, Eulalia. So Eulalia is a woman from Guatemala, like so many Guatemalans. She escaped the civil war there that, you know, if you look into that history, the United States played a very vicious role in. Uh, and I filmed her at a cooperative. It's one of the last textile factories in North Carolina, and it's called Opportunity Threads. And it's one of the last textile factories, and it's able to stay in business because it's run cooperatively um, by mostly Guatemalan immigrants. It's fascinating. They speak a multiplicity of indigenous dialects, and so their common language is Spanish. So she was interviewed in Spanish, but um, that's already her, her second language. The co-op is a fascinating business and I wanted to film them because I wanted to kind of make an analogy between um, or the workplace uh, and uh, dictatorship in typical workplaces, right? The boss is essentially like a dictator who can tell you what to wear and when you can even go to the bathroom and uh, can take away your livelihood. Well, they run their workplace like a democracy. It's a cooperative and they don't have a boss. They make determinations together. They share the profits, et cetera. 
Uh, and so we talk a bit about that in the interview, but the focus that day was the political crisis because it was the day after the election of Donald Trump. It was my last day of filming mm. What is Democracy? And so her comments are very emotional because we were all in a state of shock mm -hmm. that day. Um, and the stakes for their cooperative was high. I mean, cooperatives have a very hard time competing and accessing capital um, and all of these sort of problems that I was hoping to dig into when I got there. But now they had this new crisis, right? A crisis of, um, of uh, you know, rising xenophobia and a fear of deportations. And Eulalia was exactly right. I mean, Bill Clinton wasn't great on immigrants across the board, but he had opened space for Guatemalans specifically to come. And, um, and so she had seen firsthand what that kind of um, what those kinds of allowances would do for somebody's life. I mean, they, everybody at the factory was so grateful to be there. Delaney, likewise, I filmed the, the same day. And she's 19 years old. And it was incredibly astute, I thought, about looking at the election not as a rupture, not as a rupture mm -hmm. with America's past, but as a continuation of it. And, you know, I think she could see something that a lot of more privileged uh, white people couldn't, right? Because there was a lot of discourse right after the election that this isn't us and, uh, you know, how could this happen? And we, you know, we had democracy and now we don't. And I think for Delaney, who had already experienced a lot of racism in, in her life, she said, you know, this, this is, there's a long history that got us here. And if we don't face it, if we don't enact deep structural change and address this history, then, you know, we're doomed. And she's, a, you know, one of these people, I sort of spotted her across the campus and just had this intuitive feeling that she would make a great subject. And, you know, she's just an uh, incredibly impressive activist and definitely wise beyond her years. Mm -hmm. I, I want to uh, mention that uh, I did an interview earlier this year with Nathan Schneider, who uh, has a whole book advocating that cooperatives uh, should be an essential part of how we try to restructure our democracy and our economy. And people could find that at, at my site, terrencemcnally.net. Let me tell people, by the way, this is Free Forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking with Astra Taylor, director of the documentary, What is Democracy? And author of uh, the book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Uh, a wonderful article in The New Yorker uh, this year called The Right to Listen. And you can learn more about her work at Hidden Driver, one word, hiddendriver.com. This is Terrence McNally. You're listening to my 2020 conversation with Astra Taylor about the elusive nature of democracy. Okay, so you frame all of this. It, it begins in Athens, as I pointed out. You frame it in terms of really a... a, a a search for what is democracy. Uh, and the book, as you said, is, is a companion piece to the film. I think it's interesting that you get to, I, th I believe you say you wrote the book after, or you at least complete the book after the film, so you sort of can digest your own experience of, of the film in, in writing the book. But Cornell West is, is one of the folks you speak with. And, um, and he, uh, really agrees with you that Plato's challenge that the, the, the rich will, oh, you know, will dominate the poor, the poor will then turn to demagogues and tyranny will result, that that challenge will never go away. A little bit of what you learned from, from Cornell West. Yeah, Dr. Cornell West is always a, a pleasure to, to listen to, that's for sure. He's got an amazing, um, profound mind, but then a way of expressing it that has this capacity to really 
um, resonate with people. And it's, so it's almost poetic. Is just, someone as it comes out of his mouth, it's almost poetic. Yeah, it is. It is poetry. He's yeah. It's very much. Um, it's very much uh, poetic. And so he, he's one of the various people who sort of threaded in the film. And you know what we are talking about in that that interview. And I think what Cornell does such a great job of articulating is the kind of thing I'm trying to get at with my book title. Right? Democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. This kind of paradox that even though we don't have democracy, even though there are all of these. Um, flaws, all of these injustices, all of this domination and oppression happening, that we're we're still along the path, right? That the democracy is something that's in process and that we have to sort of protect our gains and while also sort of keeping this visionary horizon in mind. So he says, for example, you know, that that the founding of the United States was America of, of the United States of America was a sort of precious democratic experiment, even though it was limited, even though it was limited in ways that are odious, right? That it was limited just to white property owning men, that it was based on slavery, based on the dispossession of Native Americans. And, you know, nevertheless, there's something in some of these ideas that we have to uh, carry forward. Um, other paradoxes Dr. West addressed in the film relate to the tension between a sort of majority rule um, and what is you know, called the tyranny of the majority, right? So, you know, as he points out, Jim Crow was not uh, ended because it was put to a popular vote. So there's this strange fact in the history of democracy that so many of the most beautiful righteous democratic ideals were enacted by a small minority. And this minority was uh, hated often by the majority of people and also viciously fought by the powerful. I mean, I'm thinking about early suffragettes who wanted um, women's liberation and wanted the vote for women. There were far more women uh, who were members of organizations against women having the right to vote than there were women who wanted, uh, who were brave enough to join organizations for women's suffrage in the beginning. So this is one of the paradoxes of democracy that a kind of small um, minority that is out of step with the majority are, are the people who advance the democratic project. And then he also talks a little bit about the the fact that even after the civil rights movement, which you know was not a completely majoritarian movement, then it was actually the, the Supreme Court that passed liberal, uh, mm-hmm. that upheld liberal legislation, overturned things like Brown versus the Board of Education. And so there's this dialectic, there's this process uh, that he articulates so well that, you know, is that democracy is this strange phenomenon, right? That we we have popular movements, but then we also have situations where uh, a sort of minority has pushed for democratic reforms that are anything but popular in the yeah, moment. Yeah, no, he, he says and so it's not, if we he, had majority mm-hmm. rule, we would still have slavery. The emancip- He says the Emancipation Proclamation was dictatorial. And then, as you point out, the Brown versus Board of Education was the least democratic of our three branches of government, the Supreme Court. Yes. And so this is the thing, you know, why democracy requires our intellectual engagement. I mean, there are various reasons, but one is, you know, it's not it's the reality is too complicated. We can't just say, oh, it always progress always happens in this way or this one formulation is always democratic. You know, we democracy keeps us on our feet. This is a a fact of democracy. You know, many philosophers have recognized it's like it always contains 
the risk of its own undoing. There's always the risk that democracy will make a bad choice, go in a bad direction, um, that some new manifestation of it will occur. So, you know, right now we live in a moment when you know, the Supreme Court, which is, I think, inherently anti-democratic in the sense that it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a small number of justices <laughs> making incredible determinations. Uh, but now it's, you know, held uh, in in a held by conservatives who are, are, you know, anything but friends of democracy writ large. So democracy keeps us it keeps us on our one our of the other things sure. that West talks about, which which was one that sort of I I wasn't quite ready for was he asked the question, how many people truly want to be free? How many people want to govern? That goes back to that, uh, that thing I said in the introduction, that, uh, that if you decline the, you know, the option of ruling yourself, you, you are likely to be ruled by, I mean, there's a good chance you'll be ruled by people worse than yourself. Uh, this, this notion well, that, wonderful... that, that people mm-hmm. don't want the responsibility. Yeah, that was something that was really on my mind when I was making the film. It was a question I asked almost everybody. Do people really want to be free? Do people really want democracy? Because democracy is a lot of work and it demands a lot of us. And I think it's a question that that was planted in my mind actually in my early childhood when I was an unschooler, Mm. because I would often meet other kids who would say, well, I want I don't want to be in charge of my own education, you know, and and not just because they liked school and liked seeing their friends, all of that I understood because I wanted more friends, <laughs> but because they, they sort of, they didn't want the autonomy that, you know, they didn't want that sort of existential responsibility. And so, you know, that, I, I, I think that's a question that we have to grapple with because there have been lots of points in history where people have chosen the, anti-democratic alternative where people have uh, decided to um, choose fascism or totalitarianism uh, to what Eric Fromm, the the psychoanalyst associated with the Frankfurt School called Escape from Freedom, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Wendy Brown. It's it's there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Wendy Brown, who I, this is a confession, was new to me and I am now (laughs) quite interested in her work. But she, where Wes talks about Plato's challenge that will never go away, she talks about Rousseau, who, who we've talked about already, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, the, the, that his paradox that, um, that peop, what we're just talking about, people may not want to be free. And um, how do you make democracy out of undemocratic people? Uh, these are definitely connected, and I think they're connected for me in in this sense. We can say, do people really want to be free? But that's almost like taking a poll, right? And this is what democracy sort of means today in its most banal thing. We Every day there's some sort of revelation. A study said 63% of Democrats want Medicare for all, and 45% of Americans don't want to open up the economy or whatever. And so that's a snapshot of the popular uh, uh, that's a snapshot of popular opinion in this moment, but it's it's just that it's popular opinion in this moment. Democracy is a process that happens over time, and the demos changes, and the demos um, evolves. The demos we have to fight over what the demos thinks, and you know, so sort of what their horizon is, and so whether or not people want to be free is something that we 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 you know struggle over. Right. We struggle over that as activists and as organizers and saying, no, let's let's expand freedom. So I think the Rousseauian paradox, which is the sort of founding paradox of political philosophy, is 
how do you make a democratic people out of an undemocratic people, right? Because when you imagine a people oriented towards freedom, oriented towards democracy, it sort of assumes all of the structures there in place, the educational structures, the political structures that would foster that, that would cultivate that sensibility. And so, you know, that's that's this dynamic that we're in, that we whatever people think in this moment is not what they're going to think forever. And so we're going to struggle over uh, over what a democratic people is and what its capacities are. And it's a very, uh, you know, so it's this it's this dynamic process that is very paradoxical. That's why I organized my book around paradoxes. I don't think there are easy answers to a lot of the democratic challenges that we're grappling with. And I think they'll persist even if we were able to make a political system that uh, was not plagued by many of the sort of egregious characteristics of our current system. So the anti-democratic nature of the Supreme Court or all of the voter suppression that you mentioned, let's mm. say we could have some sensible reforms to make our democracy better. I think these paradoxes would persist. That's right. That's right. That, that even if we corrected the worst of what's of the distortions of democracy in America at this point, it would still be a flawed and vulnerable and fragile and dynamic uh, kind of phenomenon. And, and let me just kind of put a bow on that piece of the conversation. That is, if you know, going into the documentary, going into the book, going into this conversation, that democracy in some sense, based on Plato, uh, on, on Wendy Brown, on Cornell West, on our own experience, is unattainable, what is the objective? What is What drives you to you know, put the time and, and effort into this? I mean, I, you know, I always joke that my horizon is better problems. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's a good thing that I think it's a good thing that democracy will never just be solved and set in stone. Right. Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we who are we to tell future generations exactly how to live? I, I hope that there's a future that looks back on us today and and sees all the ways that we were short sighted, all the ways our conceptions of how to live were limited. Right. Um, and so. That dynamism to me is, you know, very important. What I like about the word democracy, it, it can be disorientingly vague, right? It can sort of be appropriated and it can be misused and and invoked without really thinking. But if you break it down to its components, the demos and, and kratos, so the people and and rule, then who the people are is always open for debate. We've expanded our notion of the people over time and how we rule is open for debate. We can rule in more and more democratic ways. Now, there, as I said, there's always going to be a challenge there. So we're, democracies are always going to have to grapple with how much, how to sort of structure their their rules uh, and how to do that in a way that still allows for the kind of spontaneity that, that is part of the democratic spirit. We have to think of people today and balance their needs with people who have yet to be born. Mm. We have to think about the local while also acknowledging that we're in a global system. We're seeing that right with this pandemic mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. um, you can have borders, but diseases will still cross them. Climate change will right. still happen. Greenhouse gases don't care about national boundaries. So these are just dilemmas that are going to persist. So I'm I'm one of these people who uh, takes solace in the fact that this is a process that will never be finished. And so my mantra at the very end of the book, I say, you know, let's not fetishize founding fathers, sort of mm. a group that puts the rules down on paper and everyone follows them till the end of time. Let's instead be perennial midwives trying to birth democracy anew. And, and I think of democracy as a sort of forward-looking project, right? Mm -hmm. It's somewhere we're going. It's not somewhere we've been 
and now we have to restore it. Mm, right. It isn't going back to a golden age, uh, even if that inspired the founding mm-hmm. fathers. Um, how has your search for democracy and your thinking about democracy influenced your activism? Well, more than my activism influenced my search for democracy. And maybe this is because I'm kind of trained by the John Holt perspective of the world. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I always think, you know, you do first and then it's out of the doing that yes. you figure out, well, what are these, what are the questions I should be asking? What do I need to read so I can better understand what's happening? So a lot of the questions that I ask in these two projects came out of my involvement with the Occupy Wall Street movement. In my ongoing work, so in the ashes of Occupy Wall Street, I co-founded something called the Debt Collective, which is a union for debtors, and we launched the student debt strike that has won uh, over a billion dollars of debt relief for our members, so a billion with a B. And uh, we were very uh, sort of central to influencing the Sanders and Warren campaigns who called for student debt cancellation and free college. But it was really out of Occupy that I began to say, sort of just wonder, what what does this movement mean when it says, you know, this is what democracy looks like? Because (laughs) Occupy was a leaderless movement, and it had these open-air assemblies that could be very sort of beautiful at dusk, you know, when people using the the people's microphone, as it was called, but were utterly dysfunctional. I mean, they broke down within a couple of weeks, and... You know, there was uh, what the feminist philosopher or an activist from the 70s, Joe Freeman, called the tyranny of structurelessness. So just because you don't just because you say everyone's equal doesn't mean everybody is. Yeah, so it's out of my organizing that I that I started asking these bigger questions and sort of thought, gosh, if I'm going to stick with this process of being an organizer and trying to create a more democratic world, then shouldn't I know better what democracy means? I can see that. I can see that. I spent some time at Occupy LA and, and, and was both inspired and frustrated, probably an equal. And, and uh, one person that, that I interviewed a, a couple of years ago, Matthew Schmucker, I don't know if you know him, he is an organizer. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm, you know? I'm, good friends with, uh, I'm good friends with him. Okay, so. From Occupy. <laughs> uh, and I said Matthew, it's Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan um, Matthew Schmucker, so exactly, you're Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But he, he had been involved with Occupy pretty intimately and, and he, what he, what I remember, the, the clearest thing he said was that the consensus rituals became more important than any objectives or goals, and and that the rituals mm-hmm. of practice became more important. And and you know he took that as as success and failure. But I can see where having put yourself in that, then that drives you. I, I appreciate that 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 drives you to ask the questions. Let me ask one question, which has been busting around my head now for a while. And let me preface it by saying uh, there's a lot of talk these days about China and and, and the U.S., uh, you know, and China and and the new Cold War. And and I I have a pretty good sense that that is going to be one of the primary Trump uh, campaign uh, issues. Steve Bannon advocates that as the primary issue. Um, But here's what I've been thinking about. as China takes the lead in the world's response to climate change, because partially because of Trump's uh, withdrawal from, from the Paris Accords and Trump's actions and all, but also because um, once it decides to act, an authoritarian government has advantages in terms of uh, uh, being able to pivot quickly, being able to mobilize on a scale that democracies can hardly, you know, imagine, and. 
I was looking at what does it mean, we're talking climate change at this point, that we have been such poor stewards of democracy that it may end up taking an authoritarian regime to be the leader in the fight against climate change. And Barbara Finnamore writes a book, Will China Save the Planet, uh, asking this question. Then I look at the pandemic. And while they made the authoritarian uh, error or the authoritarian almost inevitable thing of covering it up and lack of transparency at the start, from this point on, they may have the advantage. They're in a position to lead in supplying global needs for equipment. They're owed enormous debt. How they handle that with, with other countries will... You know, they may take the lead in restoring the global economy. In both of these global challenges, if an authoritarian state is the leader, um, what does that say, A, about democracy going forward? And when I say, have we been such poor stewards of democracy? I think you probably know what I mean, but it's that Citizens United. It's that we've given we've we've given it up to money. It's that we've given it up to disinformation on on our social media. It's that we we don't vote enough. Uh, that it allows democracy to not be the 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 vibrant, vital, uh, strong um, uh, you know body able to take on these challenges, but but sort of a weak and, and dysfunctional one leaving the door open for authoritarianism, what will that mean going forward? So I think what this means is that we need a third option because China is obviously not going to uh, lead us to a future that we want to champion, even if it might be better on some ecological metrics. I think there's a kind of slippage between authoritarianism and centralization. So, mm -hmm. you know, and, and China is both. It's authoritarian and very centralized. And so it has the power to engage these huge infrastructure projects and coordinate uh, reforms across the entire country. And, you know, we can look at those from the United States and, and, and maybe think, oh, wouldn't it be good if we could also, if we had a federal government that would, you know, transform the rail systems mm -hmm. or uh, sort of dictate a green energy transformation. But the United States is very centralized in many ways, right? So what we just saw, you know, the federal government, um, you know, act in a very speedy, coordinated fashion to make trillions and trillions of dollars of public money accessible to its corporate partners. And so I guess the question for me is centralization to what end and also decentralization to what end? Because in the United States, I think a little discussed phenomenon is how sort of decentralization is used for anti-democratic purposes. The fact our government is so fragmented and you know, there's so much sort of outsourcing to the private sector, it creates this, you know, yet yeah, the system that is not at all centralized, but is not democratic in any way. So I think that we need to reframe it and say, well, centralization to what end and for whom? Um, you know, that's who are these powers being mobilized for? That's always, I think for me, that's always the democratic question, right? It's not, um, you know, you can have a stronger federal government that uses its power uh, to promote the public good, or you can have a, a stronger sort of centralized government that uses its power for authoritarian ends. So that's, that's the issue. Um, but right now, the United States, the sort of polarized dynamic between the United States as it currently exists and China as it exists is just, 
you know, the the right thing is to just reject the both. We have to figure out uh, how to um, cut cut a different path uh, forward. And um, and I think you know the sad truth is that in the aftermath of this pandemic, that project has gotten that much harder. Yeah, I mean, the pandemic is uh, sort of a more urgent, more immediate uh, challenge, similar to climate change, but more more urgent and more immediate. And 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 so the the repercussions are rapid, uh, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. economic or or, you know, on our lives and so on. Yeah. I mean, what I think I'm behind that question for me is if we look honestly in, you know, sort of in the mirror, we can see that that there's ways in which we're seeding the field of taking on big challenges to China or to authoritarians because we've allowed democracy in this country to be so weakened, so so taken over, so uh, uh, crippled. And so uh, Danella Meadows, a famous futurist, but a systems thinker, she said that, you know, America will usually do the right thing, but it takes about three years longer than it should, you know, because of all the lobbying and all the back and forth and everything and, and, and you know, not able to turn on a dime. But I think if we could yeah. look honestly and say, we've got big challenges and we're not going to solve them with this crippled democracy we've, we've, we've been willing to settle for is kind of what where I come. Well, from. I think three years is very optimistic. I'm not sure. I yeah, agree no, with no. That. I mean, I she would was, say though that when she, you're pointing, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> you're pointing to something I think is interesting, though, because uh, and it's something that I don't get at in the film, but that I do write about in the book, which is the fact that so many of the democratic uh, successes, especially from the 1960 that we revere today actually happened not only because of domestic pressure from organizers or because of enlightened leaders or enlightened Supreme Court justices, but actually because of Cold War pressures. And so in this sense, America does tend to only Mm -hmm. be sort of as good as its enemies Mm -hmm. push it to be. Mm -hmm. So in the context of the Cold War, the fact that America was saying, you know, we are the beacon of freedom, but there was Jim Crow in the South was, you know, very... Uh, it was bad for U.S. propaganda, right? Because, well, how can you claim to be a democracy where all men are equal when you have such an egregious system of of racism? And so, you know, people within the federal government pushed a civil rights agenda sort of because of those foreign policy imperatives. And um, and so, you know, in that sense, the, the United States, you know, we're in a global order where there's the competition is actually, you know, if anything, spurring on some troubling behavior, right? Instead of yeah. uh, challenging us to be the Democrats that we claim to be, and so that that also, I think, is a, an important thing for those of us who are activists and organizers to recognize is that, you know, it's everything is happening in a global context, right? Not just in terms of yeah. the sort of science of climate change, yeah. of epidemiology, but also, you know, of, of our political systems. Foreign yeah. policy really matters. And that's one thing we're not paying enough attention to these days. Right. And in some ways, all these thoughts and questions are, you know, almost on hold until after the election, right? That, that a time of more Trump, you know, is one story and a time of uh, beginning to uh, clean up after Trump is another one. The film is What is Democracy? The book is Democracy May Not Exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. The website 
is hiddendriver.com, hidden, H-I-D-D-E-N, driver, D-R-I-V-E-R, hiddendriver.com. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles and to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net, or a world that just might work.com. They're the same website. If you want to receive my weekly email announcements of guests and issues, plus eight to 10 articles to flesh out the conversation, um, sign up at my site or email me at T-E-McNally, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y at Mac.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Freeform podcast on Apple Podcasts uh, and at most other podcast sites. You can find years of podcasts at my site and at Apple Podcasts and those other sites. Listen anytime, anywhere. Michael Lewis, Jeremy Scahill, Naomi Klein, Robert Reich, Van Jones, Connie Rice. You can also follow me on Twitter, at McNally Terrence. Thanks to G. Lee and Mark Maxwell in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all, you, my listeners. Please share this podcast widely. And thank you, Astra Taylor. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for having me. 